This is the Portside Pod, the official podcast of the Stockton Ports. I'm the voice of the Ports, Alex Jensen, and on today's episode, we review the A's 2020 draft with Melissa Lockhart of The Athletic, who gives us the lowdown on each of the new players in the Oakland organization and just how quickly they may move through the system. During these trying times, Chase Chevrolet is still open and here to serve you. With their EasyPass service, you can shop online and have your new pre-owned vehicle delivered right to your door. Learn more at chasechevrolet.com slash EasyPass. Big week in Major League Baseball. Big couple weeks in Major League Baseball, actually. And to talk about it, the draft, uh, and it turns out much more, Melissa Lockhart of The Athletic joins us. Once again, Melissa, uh, thanks for taking the time. I know when we when we first talked, uh, you know, we were we were going to lean heavily on on the draft, and we still will. I, I loved your pieces on the athletic on on the A's picks, and I can't wait to get into them. But there's been plenty of news over the last 24 plus hours uh, with the Major League Baseball 2020 season, and what's going to happen with that. It seemed like yesterday uh, we were inching closer and closer to an agreement, but kind of another two steps back today on Thursday when we're recording this. Uh, with the players asking for 70 games. Why can't we just have baseball? I mean, seriously. I don't know. I mean, 60 is like the owner's offer. 70 is the player's offer. Let's just do 65 and go. <laughs> you know, it's crazy. Um, all, you know, all this dragging your feet, and you feel like there's a window that might get lost here. And, um, you know, to get through all this and then maybe only get a few games of this season actually in before they have to shut down again if the virus you know numbers start to skyrocket would be a real shame and it's a bad reflection on the entire sport that they can't get themselves together and you know that the owners can't kind of take a step back and say okay for the betterment of baseball we'd be willing to take a little bit of a sacrifice here players are going to take on all the risk and going out there on the field um, you know, let's just get this thing done and get going because there's a lot of people sitting around with nothing to do that would have a chance to watch baseball every day and they're missing a huge w- window of advertising for the sport. I was just telling you before we start, I mean, I've been locked in on golf the last couple of weeks <laughs> as it came back and I'm normally a guy that I like to play, but I only really watch the majors normally. And I'm, I mean, I've got the RBC Heritage, I think it's called, when they're playing in South Carolina. I mean, baseball has a captive audience here. And it just feels like, especially from the owner's perspective, I mean, they're in this for the long haul. You take a little bit of a sacrifice now and, you know, it's for the betterment of your product long term. I mean, I just, I guess they're dug in. Both sides are kind of dug in. And I know there's a CBA at the end of 2021. Maybe that has something to do with this too. But it it just feels like we're going nowhere. Yeah, it's very odd to me because it also seemed like in March, you know, there was a pretty clear framework for what this would look like when they came back to the table and they were actually going to to move forward. And that all seemed to, something happened between March and then that gave these owners this sort of sense of cold feet almost. And, you know, from a negotiating perspective, that just doesn't seem fair to anybody to to start off with one framework and then change the rules midway through. But, you know, B, I don't think we're really in any different situation than we were in March. I mean, the economy was bad then. It's, it's you know, it's bad now. And it's going to be for the duration of this this pandemic. But there's sort of a social good that comes from having the sport on there if you can do it safely and giving people a chance to, to put you know, their passions behind something besides, you know, baking bread or God knows what else everybody else has been up to. Um, so, I mean, I think it, it, it's a really kind of, it's a tone death was one of the things we, you, you had said before when we were chatting before we came on. And I think you're totally right. Like they're, they're missing the whole tone and tenor of what's going on in the country and how much this could help to give people 
you know, something to do. And, I, and the players are, are working hard and they're ready to go. And I mean, to the point that you might not even need as full of spring training as they think they need to ramp back up again, because these guys have been going so hard at it, that um, it, it's a complete waste that we haven't gotten a plan on the table yet. Uh, yeah. And I'm, I'm tired of having this conversation. Like I wish we right. weren't, we didn't have to talk about this, but it's what's relevant in the sport right now. It's to, uh, like, I mean, this, this whole thing couldn't have happened at a worse time, obviously with, with 2021 right around the corner. But I, I think, you know, you say you've got a captive audience and it just feels like every day that goes on that we don't get an agreement, baseball is losing for a sport that that's had a decline in popularity. Like let's be honest and on a national scale, we talked about this last time you were on, Melissa, with the, with the scaling yeah. back of minor league teams. It falls in the same category, it feels like. Yeah, you know, and I, I think back to 2002, and I, I don't know how many people remember when this was going on, when the A's were in the middle of their 20-game winning streak. About game 14 or 15 or so was the drop-dead date for the negotiating of the extension of that collective bargaining agreement. And there was a very good chance at that point they were going to go on strike in the middle of this streak. And the streak had actually captured the attention of the, of the entire country at that point. And there was a very good chance players were going to walk out at like game 17. And at the last minute, they were able to come to an agreement. But, the, you know, they just have a way of finding when anyone could take anything positive and just shooting it in the foot. And, you know, even then, I think it sort of deflated what was, you know, could have been a really great moment for the sport by having all of that talk going into it. It was really only the last few games of that streak that that's all people could really talk about. So, um, you know, I think this is very repetitive of that they don't seem to, le you know, learn their history on this at all. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it certainly doesn't bode well for when the next actual collective bargaining agreement comes up that we're going to be able to see this done in a timely manner. I guess that is the glimmer of hope, though, is it seems like every baseball negotiation gets done. You know, they come to an agreement at the 11th hour, just about every single time. Yeah, except for the Expos in 94 or so. On except for that, yeah. If they are able to come to an agreement. Right, exactly. I know. But, you know, it's, it's just funny. You would think from that they would have learned, right? Like, yeah. you know, and, and yes, the sport rebounded. And, you know, and then you can look at, like, that documentary that came out last weekend with the summer of 98 and how they needed that to kind of recover their fans from, nine, you know, the 94. Well, what are they going to need for this? I mean, you know, no one's going to be fooled by a steroid scandal anymore. And nobody's going to be fooled by juice baseballs because we've already gone through that the last couple of years. Sign stealing seems to be something that people aren't too enamored with. So, I mean, there's, there's not going to be a little trick I don't think you can do to get people back on track. So the question becomes then, you know, when you lose people's attention, what are you going to do uh, to grow it back? So maybe this time, let's not lose the attention. Let's just yeah. get it going, do it the right way, and, and try not to take even more steps away from baseball being the center of, you know, kind of American sporting interests. They still have a chance. They still have a chance to do it because we don't know. Yeah. I mean, based on everything that's happening in Florida, like we don't know what's going to happen with the NBA yet. I mean, oh, you know, yeah. and, and the players in the NBA aren't. So there's still, it still feels like there's a window here. I guess that that's also, you know, looking toward the bright side, there's still a window for baseball to be one of the only sports back. Yeah. I mean, if they can get back on the field by the second or third week of July and they have like a 65 to 70 game schedule, you know, with an expanded playoff and, I know that the idea of an extended playoff in general is probably not all that great. In a shortened season, you know, maybe it makes a little more sense to mm -hmm. give some fairness for teams that get off to a little bit of a slower start. But at least that window seems to, you know, make sense. You even look at the NFL and you get, or college football, you get, even though they're outdoors, most of them, 
you know, they're getting into the danger zone of when the virus might really kick back up again. So it, this is probably the only window that if you're going to get a full season in, baseball's the only one that's really primed to do it. So, um, you know, I hope they get it done by the next time we talk. <laughs> <laughs> you and me both. And you, I mean, you just touched on something else. Like we don't know when the second wave, if there's like, there's so much unknown still, but let's, let's get to a, a, a you know, a, a hypothetical 60 to 70, 70 game schedule. What does that look like? What, what kind of teams do you think that benefits? You know, it really could help the A's quite a bit because I think one of their only big glaring weaknesses going into this season was how much they could stretch their starting rotation in terms of the number of innings they could put on young arms that were coming off of truncated seasons. And, you know, you looked at A.J. Puck had his recovery from Tommy John and only had a certain number of innings. Jesus Lazardo had two shoulder things and couldn't throw nearly as many innings as they had hoped, which was his second full year off of his Tommy John. Um, Shamanaya had the shoulder surgery, so really only pitched a full month in August and September. Um, and then, you know, you, you look at how much can you put on Mike Fires is getting into his early 30s and has thrown a lot of innings over the last few years. So if you have a situation where maybe those guys don't have to throw and now they won't, you know, more than 100 innings in the season, that fits right into where maybe you would have hoped they would be able to get to from an innings perspective. Um, you save a little wear and tear on guys like Fires and, and Chris Bassett, who maybe did throw a lot of innings last year. And um, and they could even maybe do a little tandem starting, which I know, you know, fans of the ports have obviously become quite familiar with. And it's something that A.J. Pock and Jesus Lazardo did together as they came through Stockton last year. Yeah. But uh, depending on how the off days work, if their off days are, are more frequent than they are in a regular season, and it sort of sounded like that was a possibility, um, you know, they could even pair those two together for one rotation spot in hopes of getting eight innings between the two of them. And, you know, you're looking at a pretty good dominant thing and maybe a chance for your bullpen to rest every five days. So I, I think um, there's a lot of really good possibilities for, the, for them from that perspective. You know, on the flip side, they've never been a particularly fast starting team. So <laughs> they're going to have to get that out of their system, you know. Um, no more of these like 13 and 17 Aprils that, that kind of tend to shoot them in the foot. Um, but I think a lot of times those are products of the fact that they've brought in a lot of new players and um, it, it shouldn't be an issue because it's not like football where they need to learn timing and patterns and, uh, you know, quarterbacks don't know which way their receivers are going to turn out of the break or anything. But somehow with the A's introducing these new players has sort of seemed to kind of get them off to these slow starts and there really aren't any new players to, to work in this year. So, um, you know, I think it, it should help them quite a bit. Um, if, you know, if everything stays, everyone stays healthy and they're able to do it. What do you think this does for guys who are almost big league ready? Like we talked about the taxi squad, right? But almost big league ready guys like Adult and Jeffries, guys like a Grant Holmes, maybe, uh, I guess Parker Dunshu. I know he struggled a little bit at AAA last year, but he's probably in that mix too. I know Brian Howard was on the 40 man or at least got the, the invite to big league spring training. So, so, you know, especially these younger pitchers. Uh, maybe they get get to dip their toe in the big league waters a, a little sooner than than they than they would have previously. Yeah, you know it's funny. I, I don't know what they're planning on doing with like the taxi squad. Like, are you able to have bigger than a forty man roster, right? Yeah. Like, so if your if your forty man roster is really a fifty man roster, then yeah, I don't see why guys like Parker Dunchy and Brian Howard couldn't come up and give them some innings when they when they need it it becomes more tricky when you're talking about having to remove people from the 40 man roster that you've already had set and you actually have long-term plans for beyond this one season. Um, but, you know, I could definitely see them working. And I think Dalton Jeffries, you know, this may work a little against 
where he would have slotted in because I think there was some sense that he might come in midway through the season and either help out of the bullpen or bolster the rotation when a guy like Paco Lizardo might have needed a little bit of a rest given mm -hmm. the lack of innings that they had. Um, but he also is a guy that might end up really kind of being a bullpen um, sort of ace in the hole for the team. And if you're not really worried about innings because everybody's innings are going to be messed up this year, maybe you do go ahead and bring him up and say, throw a full max. You know, he's got a fastball that can run up there a little higher if he's in a shorter um, inning situation. His strike throwing is really beneficial in, um, in a bullpen kind of situation too. So, um, you know, there, there are definitely some possibilities. Guys like uh, Grant Holmes and James Capellian, I think would be your options 1A and 1B mm -hmm. um, if anybody got hurt in the starting rotation and probably would have been anyway, but certainly in this situation would be, yeah. I remember talking with Martin uh, Gallegos about this, but th this whole thing has kind of saved the A's from having to make a decision on a guy like Jorge Mateo. Mm -hmm. It buys them a little bit of time, if there is a season, it buys them a little bit of time, the, the whole battle between, you know, he and Franklin Barreto, and I guess Vimael Machine was in there a little bit uh, as well as the Rule 5 pick, but it buys the A's a little bit of time uh, to, to make a decision on those guys. Yeah, absolutely. And if, if they can carry, I think, 28 or 30 on their active roster, I, I don't see why they don't carry Mateo and maybe yeah. even Machine as well, because, um, you know, at the very least, those guys are, are useful as uh, either late inning defensive replacements or, or you know, uh, base running options for them. So, um, yeah, I think that, that gives them a lot of chance. It gives them a chance to assess fully in spring training next year um, because they really only got a couple of weeks before this one shut down uh, to give those two guys a chance to really, you know, battle it out head to head with Barreto. And I think at the moment that spring training shut down, Barreto was sort of in the lead between those three. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, I'm sure it's not helpful to them, but it's certainly helpful to the A's to have that option to kind of give them a little more time to assess it. Part of this, uh, proposal I guess we're calling it now Major League Baseball thought they had a deal the players thought <laughs> they had a proposal. exactly yeah but part of this deal is 16 game playoff not just this year but next year as well as well as a universal DH which it's kind of feels like we're trending in that direction anyway but a 16 team playoff I mean that's more than half the teams in Major League Baseball you know this year it makes sense maybe not after 162 games what would that look like yeah, you know, I think what it would look like is the NBA. And, and yeah. you know, you look at um, – uh, we have a, a staff writer, Ethan Strauss, who I'm, I'm sure every Warriors fan reads religiously. Um, and, you know, and Ethan's talked a lot about how uh, the NBA is really struggling to find fan interest in their regular season. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, everybody sort of knows that the postseason is where all the money for the league is made. It's where all the interest is. The players skate through their regular season. And there's been a lot of talk of shortening – you know, that season down to maybe 60 or, or 50 games. And who knows, maybe coming out of this, it will give the NBA the chance to do that. But um, I don't think baseball would benefit itself at all from having a situation where they need to shorten their 162-game schedule, especially when you give, you know, if you buy into this idea that the owners are, are losing all this money because not only are fans not coming into the, to the stadium, and of course you'd be losing gate money if you have a shorter season, but because so many of them have built these baseball villages, which have essentially been shut down because they don't have the bars and restaurants and things, you know, okay, you're, you're, you're going to take interest away from that daily grind of baseball, which is what makes it so profitable, just to put more people in so TVS can have them on at like 2.30 on a Tuesday when everyone's at work, which is really what the first couple rounds of the playoffs ends up being anyway. And I right. imagine it's going to be worse now. So, so 
assuming we all get to go back to work, but, um, you know, <laughs> I guess we're making lots of assumptions, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't really get it. I, you know, I'd be, I'd be fine with looking at taking a one game wild card and making it a three game series. Um, you know, I like the way that, uh, a lot of the minor league leagues handle that wild card where they do the three game series as a sort of the play into the longer, um, and I think it's a little more fair than, than having a, a one game decide everything. Yeah. But to, to extend it to 16 game, teams beyond this season and a sort of wackadoodle schedule, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Well, and the, and the big difference between the NBA and what Major League Baseball would have in a 16-team playoff, if you had the eight seed in the American League taking on the one seed, I mean, there's just so much more parity in baseball. So much more can happen in – you know, a five-game series, let's say, if, if that first round would be five-game series. In basketball, the one seed is going to be the eight seed 99% of the time. Not the case in baseball. No, absolutely. I mean, yeah, you, your Don Nelson-led Warriors against yeah. the Spurs or the Mavericks is going to happen a lot in baseball. It just, you know, it happens every year now. I mean, you look at you know, the Giants in 2014, you know, that, mm -hmm. that was not anywhere close to the best team in the regular season. But you got into shorter postseasons, and you had Madison Bumgarner pitching like he pitched, and that was enough, really, to put them over the top. And I think you would see that so often. Um, you know, I, I don't know why anyone would like that. You know, the other question is, do you go to a system more like European soccer where you, like, grant regular season champions and then postseason tournament champions? But mm. that seems like very antithesis of American idea of sports, but I don't know if you could move that way. But that's sort of how they handle it in like Premier League and that sort of thing. And I think, you know, you could maybe make an argument for that. But um, yeah, I, I think we have enough teams in the playoffs. Uh, we could maybe relook at how the wild card is handled. But beyond that, I, I'm not sure what besides making TBS happy would, would be a benefit yeah. to that. Well, and it does feel like expansion is coming at some point with, with two more teams. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I think they want to get rid of the, the interleague deal. Ever, right. on, a, on a daily basis. And also, I mean, I guess that would give them more grounds to expand the playoffs by a team or two, hopefully not all the way to 16 teams. But I, right. I mean, that's, that's another bridge to cross when we do get there. Cause it feels like just like universal DH, it feels like we're getting to a place where there will be two more teams, two more major league baseball teams at some point. Yeah. Um, so I guess, I guess well, that, that playoff format would be to be determined. And I think it'll be interesting too, because obviously different divisions will come out of this crazy season, you know, based on proximity and not having to travel across the country. So is radical realignment coming, you know, you, you get rid of universal DH is the idea of having the Dodgers and the giants in a different division from the angels and the A's. Does that make sense? There's no differentiator between the two leagues anymore. So um, that's probably something that would kind of come into all this as well. I have no problem with that part of it. It's, yeah. The playoff part that I think would be more problematic. Oh, the purest in me hates that. <laughs> I mean, I still think of the Astros as a National League team, and part of me still yeah. thinks of the Brewers as an American League team. Yeah, well, they need a little Teddy Higuera, and then <laughs> yeah, right. I don't think I want to watch him hit. So, <laughs> It's the perfect time to purchase a new car today at Chase Chevrolet. Take advantage now of model year-end inventory reduction prices and supplier pricing on select 2019 vehicles. You can always count on Chase Chevrolet for the best prices, best service, and easiest car buying experience. And now, back to our episode. Okay, let's get to the draft. Five rounds, of course, with, with this whole thing. And, and um, you know, from what you've heard from people, Melissa, how, how, does, how did the five rounds and, and the subsequent uh, affected bonus pool how did that affect team strategies in, in the 2020 draft? You know, I was, 
surprised that it didn't affect it more. I mean, um, I think I would have thought that there would have been a lot more teams deviating from their normal approach than what we saw. And I think if you had looked at these five picks and you had not said which team had picked those five players, you would have been able to guess most of the time who those were. Um, you know, the Cardinals, for instance, had a very Cardinals-like draft. The Braves had a very Braves-like draft. And I think you could say the same for the A's. And um, I think ultimately what teams came up with is that they, you weren't going to moneyball this draft. You weren't going to kind of reinvent the wheel. You're stuck with what information you have. You're stuck with what you know your strengths are from your scouting department and you're going to have to trust it because there's just no new information to be found. And even though people were sitting at home, you know, it's not a mathematical formula where all of a sudden it was like, this is going to be the different answer. You're still looking at what you always have in front of you. So um, I think it really went down a lot of ways, much more as expected than, than, you know, in the past it was obviously condensed. I think some of those picks in the fourth and fifth round are your equivalent of your eighth, ninth, and tenth round senior signs that, you know, you would see picked in the old format where the guys would be signed for like 5000 and, you know, given that, that pool money to your overslot. But even the third round, you know, the third round traditionally had become like the overslot round, right, where because mm. day one had finished and that was the first round for day two, teams had a chance in the evening to go and call up these agents and find out who was going to be willing to, you know, especially high school players, turn down their college commitments to sign over slot in the third round, you know, the A's with Nick Allen was a good example of that. Mm -hmm. um, and I felt like that a lot of teams ended up using the third round the same way, even though it was like the second round of day two. Um, and I, that struck me as kind of interesting as well. But um, yeah, I don't think we saw any like new magic uh, ideas that come mm -hmm. out of this draft in particular. It's interesting because going into the draft, I thought that there would be a chance that, you know, high school kids could really get screwed out of this whole thing mm -hmm. where, you know, teams are, especially right now, teams are trying to save money. It looked like the Red Sox may maybe have tried to done that in the first round until they, you know, an overslot for a third round pick. Uh, but it sounds like it played pretty much to chalk. Yeah. You know, and even that, I think that, that Red Sox first, that pick, was more reflective of the fact that maybe MLB Network and ESPN didn't have as much information in front mm. of them than the scouting departments didn't. Because I had mm. talked to a few guys that scouted uh, Northern California, and they loved Nick York. You know, he's uh, from uh, Midi down in the South Bay. And, um, you know, a lot of them had said, that, oh, you know, he's the guy that would have gone in the first round if teams had had a chance to make sure his shoulder was okay. So, uh, you know, my assessment of that pick was, well, the Red Sox must have had an area scout in Northern California that knew his shoulder was okay and were comfortable with doing that. And they probably figured that the guy they wanted in third, third round who turned out to be Blaze Jordan, um, you know, that those two were maybe the equivalent of both of high second round picks. And if they didn't have a second round pick, they got two high second round picks for a first and a third. You know, that's not a bad trade off, I think. Yeah. But because MLB Network didn't have as much information as they normally would have had, it made it look worse on draft night than I think it probably should have. One more question for you before we get to the A's picks here. Yeah. In terms of this, uh, you know, the, the free agent signings, the, the $20,000 $20, max, right? I've seen a couple of high school kids sign. What, do, do you have any take on that? Like, wh why, if, I, if you're a high school kid, you know, why would you sign 20, 000, for $20,000 right now when you could go to, like, a junior college? If, if you want to be drafted, you can go to a junior college for a year and come back and try and improve your draft stock and probably your bonus. Yeah, you know, I think it, what it's coming down to is the uncertainty of the college season as much as it is the uncertainty of the big league season. I, I mean, junior college, I'm not sure what they're doing for, you know, mm -hmm. their team slots in terms of expanding or not expanding. But on the NCAA level, 
they've basically said teams can keep their upperclassmen and they can bring their freshmen in. But if you're a freshman, you're not going to play over some, even if it's a redshirt senior, you know, that redshirt senior was probably good enough that he made the team better and the coach isn't looking to get you drafted. The coach is looking to win the games. Right. So um, you're looking at probably not necessarily playing as much. um, And the idea of maybe having to go into that junior college to college roulette, maybe more difficult because there's so many more players in the pool now than there would have been before. Um, teams, I don't know, there was a, an article today that, you know, Sarah did for us on The Athletic that talked about teams were using some maybe a little bit dirty tricks, uh, promising assignments to certain uh, affiliates to, you know, especially players that were coming out of local areas, um, maybe adding more money to their uh, continuing education program bonus mm-hmm. structure. Um, and I, you know, I think that there, there's some of those things that are going on there too. Um, and, and, you know, at, at this point, if you're a kid and you know you want to play baseball and you're not getting any younger and a team is willing to say, I'm, we're going to invest in you at all, you know, it may just be better to start now than, than to wait it out and see whatever mess next year's going to bring. Yeah. Uh, nothing is normal right now. It, it's, well, I mean, I, I'm surprised too. I thought it was going to be all college seniors and to see yeah. this many, even college juniors go ahead and sign, you know, definitely took me by surprise. But I think that is probably a reflection that nobody's that confident in what the NCAA is going to be able to do next year either. And I feel for the, for the kids that are coming out right now in, into the draft. Yeah. It's just, it's a, if, unless you're a first round, second round talent, I mean, it's just got to be a tough time. Oh yeah, for sure. And, you know, I think just, like, when, when do you train? You know, like, mm-hmm. I remember after draft night, I asked uh, Eric Kubota, like, you know, will these guys, because they don't, can't come out and do the rookie mini camp that they normally do. Um, but, you know, some of them will come out to Phoenix and if they can and, and will do their, their physical and their signing. And then, what? you know, then they go off into a void of maybe not playing at all for the next several months. And um, that's a tough way to start a career, regardless of how high you were picked, I think. Yeah. Okay, let's get to the age picks now. And if you haven't already and you've got an athletic subscription, I invite you to, to head on over there. And, and Melissa, did, you did a great job breaking all these down and writing with uh, Soderstrom after the first day and then the, the A's, four other picks, with quotes from Eric Kubota, by the way, on, e- on each one of these. <laughs> but I, I want to pick your brain. And how I, how I kind of would like to frame this is, we'll, you know, we'll kind of get the scouting report. And then, um, you know, to pertain it back to, back to the ports for ports fans, you know, how quickly these guys could potentially move through the system, sure. like, you know, when, when they can be uh, maybe, maybe in Stockton, whether it's a year, a few years down the road. And we'll start with Tyler Soderstrom, the A's first round pick, fell to 26 overall, of course, uh, from, and I did, I did the math here, Melissa, 46 miles Sherlock High School is <laughs> from Banner Island Ballpark. I, It'd be a 50 I knew minute it drive with no yeah. traffic down 99. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, I think he's a guy that, I mean, he's advanced enough that you might have your Dallas Braden day like you did when they first moved into Banner Island ballpark and stopped him sooner rather than later. You can have all of the, the Turlock fans coming to see Tyler at Banner Island. Um, I, you know, it's, it's, it's a little hard to know with not having even a short season this year to play, but yeah, in a normal situation, I would have said second half of next season, there's a decent chance he could be there just because he, they do feel he's polished. Now he's a catcher, and catchers obviously yeah. do take longer to develop defensively. But at the same time, I don't know. I'm sure Ports fans have seen the developmental projects that uh, the A's have sent from a catching perspective to Stockton in the past. I'm not so sure they would worry about the glove being behind the bat at that stage. It's more AAA that they'd really be worried about it. So if his bat's ready, I, I could see him getting up to the California League second half of 2021, with the caveat being – you know, this gap is so unprecedented. I'm not sure how it plays out, but 
um, yeah, I mean, he's, he's, he can really hit That's everybody, just everyone I talked to just said he's just such a good feel for the barrel real quick through the zone, got power now and more power to come, um, sort of understands what pitches he can hit, which ones he should lay off of already. And uh, I think they love the work ethic and, and all that as well. So they believe the bat is that, and I've learned this over the last year or two, especially over the last couple months, that the A's will push guys and challenge guys that they feel are ready for the challenge. They think the bat is that advanced? Yeah, you know, I think the bat is, is as advanced as they've seen coming out of high school for guys that they consider. You know, there's, they're, they're never high enough. Well, most years they're never high enough in the draft to really get the, the guys that are, like, so quick from high school. But, yeah, I mean, I think they feel like, He's matched up against all the upper-level competition that he had a chance to face off of, um, you know, last summer. Um, he's got a father who pitched in the big leagues and has that background. And just that they just talked about the quickness through the zone. You know, there's not a lot of that having to kind of catch up to professional velocity when you can be that quick. And, of course, he has a left-handed hitting catcher. Those right, don't come around very often. Right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I think they, they, they make entire franchises around left-handed hitting catching, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. Now, if he does have to move off of catcher, because he's still young, right? Uh, mm-hmm. But I, I know that, they, that the A's have said that they're going to give him every opportunity to catch. If he does have to move, do you get a feel for where the A's profile him on the diamond? Well, he actually split time between catching and third base in high school because there was another very talented catcher who I think is a year behind him in school at Turlock. So they would kind of every other game, one would catch and one would play third. So I think third is certainly a possibility. Um, He's got a strong arm and he's a good enough athlete that playing right field might be a possibility as well. So I don't think it's a situation where it's either catcher or first base DH uh, or nothing else. Like, you know, this is a guy that is not a statue behind there. He can move around a little bit. Yeah, and the A's have not signed him yet, but we get the feelings this will probably be a, an overslot deal, I would imagine, for the back end of the first Yeah, time. definitely. Yeah, I think the numbers that the reported deal was just like something like 3.3, which mm-hmm. would have put him up in that sort of top 13 or 14 range that yeah. um, he had sort of projected to be going at. Did you, uh, did you get a sense for a comp that the A's are, are, are looking at? You know, I didn't get one from them. I threw out there a Matt Olson comp from an offensive perspective just because okay. – Olsen had sort of a similar kind of polish to his offensive game and, you know, the left-handed power kind of tall, broad shouldered guy. Um, and the scout that I had talked to about um, Tyler said that, Oh, that's, that's a good comp. So um, that might be from an offensive perspective defensively. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. Um, no. he, you know he's, a, he's a little bit taller. Um, so it probably just depends on where he stops growing at this point. What I loved about uh, your story on this pick was the, how surprised the A's were that he got all the way to their pick at 26. I mean, they really thought he was going to be gone in the top 15, maybe top 10, right? Yeah, I mean, I think everyone thought the Giants were his floor, or, you know, mm-hmm. that that's where he, if he got to them, which they weren't sure that, they, that he would, that he would get no further than that. So, um, yeah, once he, and once he got past there, you know, I, we talked about a little bit earlier, the one thing that maybe did change about this draft was that uh, geography might have played a little bit of a bigger role just because you didn't have everybody out there as you normally would. Mm -hmm. And there weren't a lot of teams in between the A's and the Giants that maybe would have seen him as much as the A's and Giants did just by virtue of the fact, I mean, the A's, you know, ran his area code team. So, you know, there's, there's just a lot more opportunities to see him than, you know, say the Red Sox or whoever else. Um, So, you know, that may have helped at that point, but, uh, yeah, I don't think I don't think they I, I think they had scouted him because you scout 
because in case this happens, but they never actually thought they'd get him. Right. Well, sounds like it's a good thing they did. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, they seem they seem yeah, very happy they, with them. They were thrilled. Yeah. 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 Okay, moving on to day two now. Second round pick, the right hander out of Michigan, Jeff Criswell. And everything I've heard about this guy, Melissa, it sounds like kind of a, a power arsenal. I mean, maybe there's some work to do with his mechanics, uh, yeah. but it sounds like the the front line type of stuff is there. Yeah, and I think, you know, he's a big-time competitor, too. Um, I guess he's, you know, competitive in the weight room in addition to on the mound, so he's a big, strong, kind of built like a football player, comes out of Michigan, pitched in that College World Series, came out of the bullpen and, you know, shut out Vanderbilt coming out of the bullpen. Obviously, Vanderbilt's, you know, such a good program. Um, and, and then in, as a starter came back after having faced them that much in the college world series, just, you know, the summer before and threw a very solid six and I think two thirds or six and one thirds outing against them as in a start before the season was canceled this year. So, um, you know, I think he's a guy, yeah, that there's going to be some cleanup. He's a little high effort. Um, but if that high effort can't get cleaned up, I think you're looking at a pretty solid back end of the bullpen kind of guy. It's interesting. Back-to-back drafts, the A's have, have followed the same blueprint with a high upside position player in round one and a, and a college righty in round two. But everything I read, you can tell me if I'm wrong here, everything I've read uh, made it sound like the 2020 draft class was a little bit deeper than 2019. Yeah, absolutely. And pitching in particular. So, okay. you know, I think um, last year was a little bit thin on pitching. You know, I don't think they went into it and were like dogmatically only going to take, you know, position players up high. But they did end up that way. And I think you could see the gap in um, where their pitching strength is now in the system. There's a lot of really talented pitchers at AAA and above, you know, about to be big league uh, guys like Lissardo and Puck. And then there's, you know, a little bit of a gap in the middle there. You had some injuries, guys like Gus Barlin and stuff who, you know, would have, had they been healthy, would have made that middle look a lot stronger. But, um, you know, you, you still have that gap there. So you look at how this draft unfolded and it was the strength of the draft and they sign some undrafted free agent arms as well that are sort of likely to fit into that um, getting to high A and moving up quickly uh, formula, which they really needed some help with, I think, this year. It sounds like if this guy, Chris, Jeff Criswell, can throw more strikes on a more consistent basis, maybe he's a guy that moves pretty fast. Yeah, I think so. And I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if him and last year's second round pick, Tyler Baum, sort of moved together just given because of this weirdness with the way that this gap has, has ended up that, you know, those two guys could sort of end up being your Dan Straley, AJ Griffin pair, or your, you mm-hmm. know, your Brian Howard, Parker Dunshee pair kind of moving along at a similar pace. Okay. Onto the third round now, and maybe the A's went under slot here uh, in order to afford the, the Soderstrom pick, but Michael Goldberg got a Georgia tech. And I, I mean, I say under slot, I mean, it's probably because he hasn't hit for much power. But, I mean, look at this guy's numbers at Georgia yeah. Tech and the ACC. Two and a half years, obviously, hit 374 with a 465 on base, and he never strikes out. So maybe the question for him is, I mean, obviously he profiles as a, as a bat-to-ball type of guy, high on base. But maybe the question is for him, can he stay in center field? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, he had a shoulder injury his freshman year that had to be surgically corrected. And so he DH'd his whole sophomore year and then was just, starting to get back on the field and prove that that shoulder was sound this year and then everything stopped. And so, you know, I, Kubota had said that the medical people checked it out and they felt good with the risk and, you know, that he's not a pitcher, so they, they weren't as concerned about it. Mm-hmm. But if he can't field, you know, even if he's hitting that high of average, it's not a great option at DH if he can't hit for power. So, um, you know, you're hoping that he can stick. But if, he, if he's able to throw, you know, you are looking at, 
a guy that could be potentially in the middle of the diamond who gets on base at a very high rate, hits for a high average, and maybe if the shoulder is able to get strengthened enough, that power comes into play a little bit long, you know, further down in his career. So um, as an under-slot signing goes, I think this one probably holds more value than some of the other ones that maybe were picked in a similar vein uh, mm -hmm. in that same round. Where'd you get a feel for like the A's speed grades on Goldberg? They, they thought he was an above average runner. So okay. yeah, they saw him because he did play some left and I, in some, and I think people were thinking cause that was his foot speed, but um, and some first base, but I think that they thought that's more because of his shoulder and it, that the, the uh, throwing was going to be a stretch from um, center field. And that instead, but that he had the speed to be there um, and that, you know, he might even be able to play a little bit of second base if he can play first base already. Um, so that gives another, you know, that versatility option. Um, and, you know, it's also a little bit of a similar thing. I remember with Max Muncy when the A's took him, you know, he was profiled as a first baseman because that's where he was playing at Baylor because that's where they needed him to play. But he had been an infielder his entire career leading into that. And as a second baseman, you know, and, and that came into play later in his MLB career. He wasn't just the first baseman. So just because Goldberg was playing a lot of left field and first base coming off this injury doesn't necessarily mean that's where he would be as a pro. It sounds like he could move pretty quick because his bat sounds pretty advanced. Uh, but I guess his, his ability to make an impact at the big league or maybe even AAA level will depend on where he's playing on the field. Yeah, I think so. You know, you, you, you kind of look like, is he going to be like Steve Stanley back from that money ball draft? Or is he going to be somebody who actually like, you know, makes a, a big league impact and yeah, being able to get a little power in there is going to make all the difference. for him. All right. This guy had no hit LSU this spring before the shutdown, the fourth rounder, uh, right-handed pitcher Dane Acker out of Oklahoma. It kind of feels like, uh, you know, reading your profile on The Athletic, it, it kind of feels like this is kind of where the A's have had success, picking, you know, more advanced college right-handers like this. I know you compare him to a Parker Dunchy, maybe a Brian Howard, who, who know how to – I mean, I don't, I'm not sure how, how big the stuff is, but it sounds like a guy that knows how to pitch. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there, this is one organization, and I think this draft was funny because there were a lot of teams that took smaller right-handers um, that maybe normally wouldn't, but the A's are a team that has never shied away from smaller right-handers. And he's not, as, I don't know, he's listed as 6'2". I think he's probably more like six feet and he's not particularly broad, but, but he can pitch. And I think that's always been um, their number one overriding factor and, and they don't care how tall somebody is. Um, the way that a lot of teams do when it comes to pitching. So, um, yeah, I think they like the mix. I think they, they see some ability with that cutter slider that Gil Patterson's hands, you know, can be an even bigger weapon for him than it is now. And if you don't hit LSU and you miss as many bats as he was missing, you know, I think you're, you're proven that you can pitch at a, at a high level. And they've had some good success with Oklahoma starters in the past as well. So I think that's a program they feel pretty comfortable with as well. So, so the strikeout numbers, now I didn't, I didn't dive too deeply into the strikeout numbers, but his strikeout numbers were, were pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, they were. And then, you know, in his junior college year, they were high as well. Um, and it, so it, it, he seems to be able to miss that, even if it's only, you know, topping out at 93, 94. Mm -hmm. um, he's got enough of that secondary mix and his ability to work backwards um, that, that he's able to get those, those strikeouts. Another guy that could probably move pretty quick, I'm assuming. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, again, you don't draft for your system need necessarily, but if you right. were to have said that there was a weakness, it was getting guys to that high A level that could actually compete in the California League and move forward. And all the pitchers that they've taken and also signed so far in the undrafted free agent um, signing period are all guys that sort of 
fit that. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if any, you know, if any of these guys ended up in stock rotation next year, it wouldn't shock me. A guy that was gaining, it sounds like some, uh, some helium during the spring was Stevie Emanuel's out of Washington, the A's fifth round, another right-hander. I know he was in the Cape last year, but 38 strikeouts and 22 and two thirds innings pitched uh, in the spring. And uh, judging from your article, it, it sounds like more of a sinker slider guy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a guy who I think, um, it, you know, is somebody that, again, really knows how to mix his pitches really well. Mm -hmm. He has a bigger frame. So I think his velocity actually plays off a little more than, um, you know, say Akers does because he's getting downhill a little bit quicker. Um, but he also, Jimmy Kaufman was his uh, signing scout and, you know, is a guy that's been, you know, really keyed in on pitching in the Northwest um, for a lot of years. And I think, you know, felt very strongly about this kid's abilities. And he's performed everywhere he's pitched, you know. Like, I think that's one of the things, too, that you, you look at his numbers at Washington and every role they put him in, he succeeded in pretty much right away. Um, he goes to the Cape and he did just fine there. And um, he, is, I think it was uh, 16th best strikeout per nine inning rate in the shortened season in the NCAA. So he's missing a lot of bats. Um, so definitely, I think he's a guy that, uh, you know, you'll, you'll probably see in Stockton sooner than later. And it sounds like a guy that if the college season, if there were a full college season, maybe his draft stock would have improved by a round or two. Yeah, there were a bunch of those guys that I mm -hmm. think, um, you know, were just making that transition from having been primarily bullpen guys or sort of mixed starter bullpen guys to becoming Friday night starters and had gotten four starts in and were just starting to get on radars and then, you know, everything kind of disappeared on them. So um, he, he falls into that bucket. Um, you know, there were a few other guys that you, you saw uh, picked, a couple of guys I profiled that ended up with other teams that, you know, was the same thing. It was been almost exclusively relievers their first few, two years of college. And this was going to be the year that they could prove it on Friday night. And they got like four Friday nights. And that was it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think pitching probably is where the bulk of those types of guys would have been impacted the most you know hitters tend to be able to hit wherever they are on the field but the pitchers are the ones that because you'd only have you know a few starters um really got hurt by this early shutdown i think and both of these guys we talked about chriswell but both these guys sound like they the a's are gonna i mean they want to develop them as starters for the time being yeah you know i um i it's very rare and houston street's probably one of the few exceptions where they take a guy in the top you know five rounds and they think reliever right away you know yeah. Um, the whole idea for them, everybody want, needs to change up, even if they're coming out of the bullpen. And the best place to, you know, kind of develop that is in their bull, uh, in the starter, not in a bullpen role. And so even if ultimately some of them were going to become relievers, um, it, it's going to be a year or two as a starter to really get that third pitch going and be able to have a major league change up. Even a guy like Lou Trevino, he, he started out as a starter. Oh, yeah. 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 You know, and I, and I don't know if he would have ever figured out the tweak with his mechanics if he had not gone through his like sort of struggles as a starter because he had all those not even struggles but just you know sort of moving a little slower as a starter because he had all that time in between starts to think about it and then he's looking at other players and as a reliever he wouldn't have had those down days that he could have thought about his mechanics as much so I, I think there's usefulness in, in um, developing as many pitches as you can for as long as you can. Do any of the A's free agent signings uh, you know after the draft do any of those stand out to you? Well, there are a couple guys from um, the two pitchers they've signed so far from the Big Ten. Um, so they got one from the University of Iowa and one from the University of Illinois, um, both of whom were, um, you know, seniors and, and performers. And, you know, big conference, 
um, who again, I think, you know, they've done well with guys like that. I mean, Howard and Dunchy are two of the um, examples of it. If you can compete in a power five conference and you've proved it, they don't care you're a senior, you know, like you're, you're still going to be useful. And if you get there in two years, your age sort of evens out to whether you didn't pick this as a junior or senior anyway. Um, so those guys sort of fit in there with what, um, you know, I would have thought, um, you know, would have been, um, you know, they, they would have been draft picks of the team. You know, you would, you would see that as kind of, um, there. The other two guys, there's two catchers, one from Loyola Marymount, and then the other one is an interesting, um, he was at Wake Forest, but he was a graduate student transfer from Cornell. So I think his name is Will Simeonette. I, I, I probably have the pronunciation wrong, but um, so he played his, his three years or whatever it was of eligibility at Cornell and was a big time performer in the Ivy League and then was a grad transfer to, to Wake and um, put up huge numbers through the first couple of weeks of school and then it was all um, shut down, but uh, obviously older, um, and I don't know what his receiving skills are like, but his hitting numbers were pretty impressive. So it'll be interesting to see, um, you know, what what comes out of it. But it's also a good reminder that you need a lot of catchers yeah. because even just the field teams, you've got to have at least you know a certain number of catchers in house. So um, I was a little surprised more catchers weren't signing in this undrafted free agent period. Cooper Ewell from LMU. I covered the WCC for a number for okay. you know three or four years, but I remember Cooper Ewell from LMU, who the A's, who's the LMU catcher you mentioned, really good catch and throw guy. I mean, I don't know how much okay. the bat is going to play, but you know, I mean, he's, he's pretty good behind the dish, so that that fits the the profile it seems of an A's catching prospect. And it fills their quota of drafting a Cooper who can catch every couple of years, <laughs> so <laughs> so he, he he's got the Cooper quota filled. But yeah, no, I, I mean they they were thin on catching just from attrition last year. So yeah. it, it wouldn't surprise me if one or two other catchers end up kind of trickling into the system before next year too. Um, so even though Sutterson is a catcher, that, that probably doesn't play into what these signing strategies would be. It just feels like a position you need a lot of depth because they've taken, you know, they took two catchers in the top seven rounds. I think it was last year. Mm -hmm. Took another catcher the year before, I think in the eighth round, you know, you, you, it just feels like a position where you need a lot of guys. Yeah, and the better receivers you have, the better they can help develop your rotation. So yeah. it's it's useful, you know, a guy like JJ Swartz, you know, from um, Florida, the eighth round picks from two years ago, like you mentioned, or you know, the, like Drew Milius, um, mm -hmm. who didn't get a chance to play last year, but you know, probably would have started in Stockton this year. Um, really good receivers, and so when they can receive and work with pitchers at an advanced level because they played at an advanced level in college. Um, that makes your pitching coach's job a lot easier too. So there, there are a lot of secondary reasons for taking, if you, you know, if you have six column throws in your system, you're much better off developing pitching than if you don't. So I think that's, that's kind of some of the strategy that you get um, in, in taking some of those guys. Well, Melissa, this has been so much fun. Thanks. I mean, it's fun as always. Uh, I'm glad we could finish this with, uh, you know, not talking about the labor negotiations right. <laughs> yeah. with what's going on with Major League Baseball instead. Look at the future and who might be in Stockton soon. And it's really exciting. This whole list is, is led by a, a Central Valley native, a 209 guy in Tyler Soderstrom, who, I mean, it sounds like we could see in Stockton sooner than later. So at least for a high school prospect. So it, it's, uh, it's a good way at least to, to cap this conversation. Absolutely. We need good news from next year and hopefully he's it. Yeah. <laughs> and hopefully this year, I mean, hopefully yeah. this year, I, you know, I know, I, I don't know what's going to go on minor league baseball this year. None of us know officially, but hopefully we get baseball this year. And hopefully, like you said, hopefully the next time we talk, we're talking about actual games that are going on. 
Yep. And when that 16 team postseason comes down, we'll be here to break down every one of those 87 postseason games. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Melissa, thanks so much. It's great talking to you. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Sounds good. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Portside Pod. If there are topics or interview subjects you'd like to hear on future episodes, tweet at me at ajensen86. The Portside Pod is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other platforms, as well as at our home, anchor.fm slash Stockton-Ports. You can also visit the Ports website at StocktonPorts.com and follow the Ports on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and other social media platforms. Until next time, I'm Alex Jensen. Please stay safe, and we'll talk to you on the next episode of the Portside Pod.